Philippians chapter 3. This morning we will be looking at only verses 1 through 3, but I would like for us to read verses 1 through 11. Starting in verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again to you is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God, and boast in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, As to righteousness, which is found in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, that I might count them but rubbish so that I might gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God upon faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is the very word of the living God. Let's pray. Lord, we have just once again read your perfect word. I ask, according to your great and abundant mercy, that Holy Spirit, you would speak to us today about your grace and your mercy, about the love you have for us in ways that would be unforgettable. So much so, Father, that everyone in here who knows you would be sanctified would be conformed into the image of your dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if there be anyone here who does not know you, Lord, would you save them according to your grace, as we read in Isaiah, for the glory and praise of your name. Amen. We've all been sick before. None of us in here can't think of a time probably when we haven't been sick. But have you ever been sick and not known how sick you were? I've been sick before recently. 
Our pastor even told us in the past couple of weeks that he was sick and wasn't aware that he was so severely sick. Maybe that's happened to many of you. You've been ill. You've been sick with a particular thing for so long that you didn't even know you were ill. You didn't even know you were sick. You were sick so long you didn't even realize that the sickness was there. This can happen many ways. Maybe it's something you've eaten your whole life that's actually been harming you. Perhaps you've had a vitamin deficiency that you didn't know you've had for so long that's kept you sick. Maybe you've had a disease that's been low and hidden under the radar that the doctors haven't seen. Maybe a problem with certain muscles or joints being stiff, keeping you from functioning mobily the way your body should be. Regardless of the sickness or the ailment you may have faced, we've all experienced a time when we've been sick for so long we didn't know we were sick. And slowly, our bodies got used to that ailment and we became unaware that our bodies were breaking down. And you didn't even come to the conclusion that you were sick. You just maybe happened to go to the doctor for a checkup, and the doctor looked at your lungs, listened to your heartbeat, got some blood work done, maybe did an x-ray, and then you got the news, you're sick. Well, how could that be? I didn't know I was sick. How is that possible? But that's what the results say. And so the doctor, the physician, prescribes you what you need to make you well and tells you what you ought to avoid. And you listen because the sickness, the illness, whatever it may be, is serious, so serious that it may even one day be fatal. And before you know it, you you listen to what the doctor says. You avoid what he tells you to avoid. You take what he has prescribed to you. And you wake up and you feel like you've never felt before. It's like me and my enemy gluten. (laughs) You go back to the doctor for a checkup. And you were like, "How, how did I not realize I was so sick? How did I not realize the illness that I had? You feel great. Your energy is renewed. You're functioning at 100%. The fact is you didn't realize how bad you were until you were made well. Right? And because now you are well, you have to go tell everyone about what happened to you. And I just used the common example of gluten, right? So you have to go warn everybody about gluten or whatever it was. I was sick for so long. I didn't know I was sick, but I was made well. And everybody rejoices with you. That's wonderful. That's great news. But what kept you ill? And then you get really serious. This is what made me ill. And you warn everybody about it. Abstain from this thing. Stay away from it. Take what the doctor told me to take, what he prescribed. And then you go back to rejoicing that though you were sick, 
you were made well. Here in Philippians, verses 1 through 3, that is the case with the Apostle Paul warning the church of the disease of legalism. Here in verses 1 through 3, we find Paul's loving exhortation, a solemn warning, and an unwavering assurance. First, let's look at Paul's loving exhortation. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. This is Paul's loving exhortation. He starts off with the word, finally. And if you are familiar with any of Paul's epistles, when he says finally, we know he at least has another chapter or two to cover before he's done. So when he says this, he is not meaning these are his concluding thoughts. Rather, finally could also be translated now then or furthermore, indicating that what he is about to tell us is of great importance and value. He says, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. As believers, joy is the anthem of our life. Believers cannot help but be joyful. He tells us to rejoice. This is a present imperative command. That means it's supposed to be happening all the time. Without ceasing, you and I, beloved, are to rejoice, to be glad in. That is the verb form of the noun joy. Joy. Joy, if you've been studying Philippians, is one of the main themes. Though there is false teaching going on in the church, though the church in Philippi is disunified, though... Many of them are suffering as well as Paul who is writing this letter from a prison. The command is to rejoice. To be glad. Philippians chapter 1 verse 4. Paul tells us he always offers prayer with joy in every prayer for you all. Verse 18 of chapter 1 talking about his detractors. Paul says, What, that, only that, in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Verse 25 of chapter 1, Paul says, And convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Chapter 2, verse 2, Fulfill my Joy. Verses 17 through 18 of chapter 2. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And you also rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Verse 28 through 29. Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him again you may rejoice. 
Verse 29, receive him then in the Lord with all joy. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, loved and longed for my joy. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Verse 10, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Joy, joy, joy. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. Be glad. That is the theme of our lives, beloved. Joy, rejoicing. What is joy? Theologian and beloved pastor who has gone to be with the Lord now, James Montgomery Boyce, defines joy this way. Joy is an inner quality of delight in God. And it is meant to spring up within the Christian in a way totally unrelated to the adversities or circumstantial blessings of this life. No matter what is going on in your life, no matter what takes place day to day, the circumstances each hour brings in your life, joy is a constant inner delight in God. Everything that God is, everything He has done for you, is doing and will do. That's what Paul says. Rejoice in the Lord. Does this characterize your life? Can you identify with the church in Philippi and Paul Say that, yes, my life is characterized by joy. I love our church. Our church is one that is filled with joy. Joyful people. People who are not here for themselves, but here for Christ. Here to know Him. Here to worship Him. Here to serve others. Our joy is in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord. This completely marks us differently from the world. The world doesn't know true joy because they do not know God. At best, they experience some happiness, but that is circumstantial, right? Depending on what's going on, life can real quick Ruin your happiness. Steal your joy. You get sick. You get ill. People hurt and betray you. Physical ailments bring you down. Happiness changes because life changes. Our circumstances day to day change. But as believers, beloved, we have joy which is unchanging no matter the circumstance. Our joy does not change because our joy and our rejoicing is in the Lord, the unchanging one, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Paul doesn't say, rejoice in yourselves. Beloved, you and I are nothing but the Lord is everything. Paul doesn't say, rejoice that you are suffering. He says, rather, Rejoice in the Lord. 
who works all things for good according to his purpose and those who are called by him. So how do we get this joy? Well, this joy is only received by those who come to know Christ. This joy can only be received by those whom the Lord saves. So joy starts with salvation. Turn to Luke chapter 19 to illustrate this. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 19. Our Lord up to this point has just had his encounter with the rich young ruler. He's healed Bartimaeus and he regains his sight. And then in Luke chapter 19, we find the story of Zacchaeus, the wee little man, and the wee little man was he. We all know the song, right? Look at verse 1. And he, being Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on before and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received him joyfully, gladly. Verse 7, And when they, the Pharisees, saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. But Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have extorted any one of anything, I will give it back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Joy starts with salvation. When you meet Christ, when Christ comes to you, there is joy, abundant joy. All throughout the Old Testament, we see believers with joy. Psalm chapter 5, verse 11, But let all who take refuge in you, Yahweh, be glad, and let them sing for joy. And may you shelter them that those who love your name, may exalt in you. I think of other scriptures, Psalm 32, verse 11, Be glad or joyful in Yahweh, and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Or Psalm 33, verses 1 through 2, Sing for joy in Yahweh, O righteous ones, praise is becoming to the upright joy, joy, joy. It all starts with salvation. If you know Christ and if you are in Him, then your life must be characterized by joy. I've never seen someone come to Christ unjoyfully or begrudgingly. Have you? I haven't. Anyone who comes to Christ cannot help but 
but rejoice. The second reason we rejoice is not only because we have it within us, because we have been saved, we have been redeemed, because we are commanded by Paul to rejoice, but also we rejoice because it is Christ's will and desire for us to rejoice. Turn to John chapter 15. I trust this is a familiar passage to you, John 15. Jesus says in verse 1, I am the true vine, my Father is the vine grower. He then goes on in verses 2 through 10 to talk about that those who are in Him abide in Him and they bear much fruit. And then in verse 11, He says this, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you. And that your joy may be complete. This is the reason Christ has given us his word. That he has spoken these things to us. So that his joy may be in us. So that our joy may be complete. Turn over a couple chapters to John 17. Jesus prays for our joy. Jesus' prayer before the night he is crucified says in John 17, 13, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they, meaning his sheep, his saints, may have my joy made full in in themselves. Excuse me. What an incredible thought. We don't only rejoice because we're commanded to. We don't only rejoice because of our salvation. We rejoice because Christ's desire is that we be joyful. The very same joy He has, He dispenses in you. Wow! What an amazing thought. That the very joy Christ had, He prays, would be put in you. That's what he prays for to the Father on your behalf. We should be rejoicing. I love talking to new believers. Has anyone in here ever talked to a new believer, someone who has just come to faith in Christ? What is the one thing that characterizes that person? Joy. Rejoicing. They realize the death and the disease that they've been raised up from. They've been regenerated, renewed, a new creation. They have come to Christ and the veil has been torn from their eyes. And they have been saved. And the one thing that characterizes them is joy. You can't stop talking to Him. I can't get them away from me because I just keep on talking. Joy, joy, joy. That should characterize all of us. 
The grace of God and his gospel should never grow old to us. And what he has done for us. What he is doing for us. And what he will do. Our rejoicing is in the Lord. Third reason we rejoice. We have joy because we know who God is. We know who he is. If you've been coming to our Wednesday night studies, we've been doing a study on the Lord's Prayer. More appropriately, the Disciples' Prayer. In which we've seen our relationship to our Father. We've been looking at who God is to us. Our loving, gracious God who cares for us so deeply. Knowing who he is to us and who we are to him, his children, his beloved children should only and can only ever produce joy. Knowing who God is produces joy. And how do we know him? We know him through his word. He is the word. Psalm 19 You don't have to turn there, but you can just listen. I love this psalm, if not one of my favorites. The law of Yahweh is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of Yahweh are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of Yahweh are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than even much fine gold. They are sweeter also than the honey and the dripping of the honeycomb. We know God through his word, and we just heard God's word described. It is everything. Produces rejoicing in the heart. No matter where you are in life, beloved, joy is our anthem because of where it is found in God Almighty, in Yahweh, the unchanging one who loves you who joyfully, Hebrews 12, 2, took on the cross, bore your burden at Calvary, and paid the debt you and I could never pay. And that very same joy he dispenses in us, prayed that it would be made complete in us. What an incredible thought. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice Go back to Philippians. Philippians 3, second half of verse 1. He says, To write the same things again is no trouble for me, and it is a safeguard to you. This phrase, to write the same things again. What what is Paul referring to here? Is Paul referring to things in this letter? Or things that he's written in a different letter? 
Or is Paul referring to another time when he's visited the church in Philippi? Most likely, and good men believe different ways, and though it is debated, most likely Paul is referring to something that he's written in a previous letter. But regardless on what stance you take, that's not the point. We need to understand what Paul is saying here. What is he saying? To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Let me illustrate it to you this way. It's like my, my mother. I love my mom. And every time I see her, we have a, a great time because it's my mom. But when I leave, she always tells me, son, drive careful, right? We all live here in West Texas. We know how people drive out here in the Wild West. So she says, son, be careful. And me being so foolish sometimes, I get irritated for no reason. I say, what, what do you mean? I'm, I'm always careful. I'm never not careful, which isn't technically true. But she tells me, son, I, it, that's not the point. I'm not saying you're not being careful. I'm just telling you because it's a safeguard, because I love you. It's a loving reminder to me to be careful whether I am or not. It's her loving exhortation to me. Why? Because it gives my mother peace. So if I do get in a wreck, she can't blame herself. And so it also keeps me safe and watchful of the potential danger. It is a safeguard. And that's what Paul is doing here. It is a loving reminder, a loving exhortation. Rejoice in the Lord. It's not a trouble for me to write the same things to you because I love you. Because it's a safeguard. Because what I'm about to tell you is of the utmost importance. Paul says this to prepare the church for what he is about to say. And though joyful in verse 1, Paul's tone takes a dramatic 180 degree turn in the opposite direction. Going back to the illustration I gave in the beginning, you were joyful that you were made well, but now you have to warn everybody what to stay away from, to stay away from what made you so incredibly sick. And that's what we find Paul doing here in verse 2. Like a machine gun on full auto, or like a boxer fighting in the ring, Paul gives these three rapid-fire blows. Three Beware statements. Look at verse 2. He says, beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. These three beware statements, beloved, should make us all sit up a little bit more straight and pay attention more closely. Here is Paul's solemn solemn warning. Verse 2, he says, beware. Here he means this in a, in a visual sense, not just mentally, but visually. Watch out. Look out for 
like a soldier whose duty is to stand on guard and watch the enemy, watch out for the enemy. That is what Paul is calling us to do here. He says, beware of the dogs. The Jews often referred to the Gentiles as dogs. But dogs in the ancient world were nothing like the dogs as we have today. Paul is not talking about Rottweilers and Chihuahuas, beloved. He is talking about something more serious. And so I did some research on dogs in the ancient world. And so I would like to give you what I've found in order to set the context and paint the picture of what Paul is saying here. Church historians and historians in general and records show that dogs in the ancient world kept in groups. They kept in packs. They were really close and tight-knit. They were incessantly ferocious, uncontrollable. They preyed on humans, attacked and ate them. They were rather filthy. They prowled the streets at night. They tore up people's property. And they even carried disease with them. And they were so ravenous, so uncontrollable, that in the pagan culture, they often associated dogs with demons. They believed the dogs to be demon-possessed. And in ancient inscriptions, in Egyptian and Roman tablets and parchments, show us that the people of the ancient world, because of how bad the dogs were, created demons associated with dogs. This isn't new. We know this, that the pagan world created a myriad of different gods. Well, they also created a myriad of different demons, giving them different names. And the ancient people of that world had created a demon dedicated to the dogs. He was the controller of all the dogs. And they gave them him a name, Pazuzu, the dog demon. And this dog demon was a demon with a dog, with a head of a dog, excuse me, whose goal, as the pagan parchments tell us, was to wreak havoc and to destroy anything or anyone in his path. And the image that they had for this demon, Pazuzu, is quite grotesque, and I won't go, it, go into it in detail, but anywhere where you found the image of Pazuzu, you also found an inscription with it. And on the inscription, it says this, I am Pazuzu, the king of the evil spirits of the air who bursts forth in might, from the mountains and goes forth raging. Pazuzu, the running dog, makes yellow the body of man, makes his face yellow and black, makes black even the root of his tongue. And in pagan culture, people who were suffering with disease, suffering with an ailment, would wear a medallion with Pazuzu's image on it in that inscription. So you would know, number one, to stay away from that person, but that also that person was paying homage to Pazuzu in the hopes that he would retract the pain he was inflicting on them. 
That's how bad dogs were. They described them as demons. They brought nothing but havoc, disease, death, filth, ravenous, uncontrollable creatures. This was a term of reproach. To be called a dog is the worst of the worst. And that is what Paul is saying here. Paul does not mince his words. He knows exactly what he is saying. Paul is calling a particular group a bunch of demon-possessed dogs wreaking havoc, spreading disease and death wherever they go. Although the Jews described Gentiles this way, Paul is not talking about the Gentiles. He is talking to the Gentiles. In fact, he is talking to Gentile believers. So who is Paul referring to here? Who are the ravenous, uncontrollable, demon-possessed dogs that Paul is telling us to beware of? First, we see who we need to beware of. Now Paul goes on to tell us to beware of their characteristics. Verse 2, beware of the evil workers. This is a common phrase in Scripture to describe a sinner. This is who we all were before we came to Christ. We were evil workers. We only did evil continually. We didn't seek God. We were dead in our sins, Ephesians 2. But here, the way Paul uses the term, it implies something more in that these dogs, these evil workers, intentionally set out and willfully do evil against the gospel. They distort it. They twist it. How exactly do they do evil against the gospel? Well, Paul tells us, third part of verse 2, beware of the mutilation. What is that? Well, a group of Jews called the Judaizers would mix the law and the gospel. They were legalists. And what they would tell Gentiles who had come to Christ is, okay, that's great, you came to Christ and all, but now you have to come and also follow our law in order to be saved. They would then take the Gentiles, mutilate them, Circumcised, grown adults. And this group of Judaizers even went so far as to commit other mutilations prohibited in Scripture, specifically Leviticus. This group of Judaizers is who Paul is referring to as the dogs, the evil workers. Paul is talking about his own people. The legalists, the Pharisees, the Judaizers who mix their law in with the gospel. Do you feel the weight of what Paul is saying here? Those who mix law in the gospel, 
are nothing but demon-possessed, ravenous, disease-spreading, death-carrying dogs looking for people to devour with their legalism. As one commentator put it, these Judaizers, the circumcision they performed and their mutilation was their, quote, greatest source of pride. Why is that? Was circumcision unbiblical? No. Back in Genesis 17, when God establishes his covenant with Abraham, he tells them that is what they ought to do. Because that was a sign to show that they are God's people. It was a physical sign, however. And these Judaizers missed the entire point. The cutting away didn't put you in God's family. It was more so a heart issue. The cutting away was just a symbol to show what had happened in the heart. Our God even tells us this. Deuteronomy chapter 10. If you want to turn there in your Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy 10, starting in verse 12. So now, Israel, what does Yahweh your God ask from you but to fear Yahweh your God, to walk in all his ways and love him, and to serve Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of Yahweh and his statutes which I am commanding you today for your good, Behold, to Yahweh your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Verse 15, Yet on your fathers did Yahweh set his affection to love them, and he chose their seed after them, even you above all peoples, as it is this day. Here it is in verse 16, So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer, for Yahweh your God is the God of gods. And the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the fearsome God, who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. In Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4, we're starting in verse 3. For thus says Yahweh to the men of Judah and to Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground and do not sow among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to Yahweh and remove the foreskins of your heart. Men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like the fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. It was a physical sign to show what had happened in the heart. The removal of stone and the giving of the heart of flesh. Ezekiel 36. And though the Jews, the Judaizers, the Judaizers, excuse me, had done the physical sign, they had no true heart change. It was all a list of rules. They still had the heart of stone. It was all a show. Turn to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. Paul tells us this. Galatians 6, 
starting in verse 12, he says, As many are wanting to make a good showing in the flesh. They're wanting to show off. They're saying, look at me, look what I have done. These are trying to compel you to be circumcised, simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Verse 13, For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they want to have you circumcised so that they may boast in the flesh. It was all about boasting. It was their greatest source of pride. Look at me. Look what I have done. There was no true heart change. You may be saying, wow, Paul, that, that's kind of harsh to refer to a group of your people as demon-possessed dogs. How can you say this, Paul? Paul. Because Paul was once a dog. Paul was once a legalist. Paul was once a false teacher. But he was saved, was he not? Next week we'll be looking at the coming verses 4 through 11 and see Paul's testimony. But Paul speaks of the disease clearly because he once himself had the disease. As Steve Lawson says, anybody who mixes law and the gospel is a dog. You cannot do that. You cannot temper with the gospel. Philippians chapter 3. Verse 2, we see his solemn warning. Beware of the dogs, beware of what they do, and beware of the mutilation. What will happen to you if you are not watchful, if you fall prey to their evil doctrines, their vain philosophies? Beware. It's a solemn statement. It's a serious statement that all of us all of us should take heed to. Lest we mix the law with the gospel. Lest we become legalists. Beware, beloved. Paul goes on in verse 3. We see his joy in verse 1. We see his solemn warning in verse 2, but now we come to verse 3, which is Paul's unwavering assurance. He says, For we are the circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We are the true circumcision, meaning we are... God's true sheep. We are His elect. We are His people. We are true believers. But how do we know that? How do we know, Paul? Well, he tells us in verse 2 where he defines false believers and gives them and gives us their characteristics. They mix the law and the gospel. They mutilate themselves. They're legalists. 
He does the same thing in verse 3, but for true believers. Paul defines true believers and lists a couple of their characteristics. Number one, our worship is true worship. False believers, their worship is void. It's no good. It's phony. It's fake. As Paul said in Galatians 6, it's a show. They show in the flesh. They boast in the flesh and what they have done. But true believers, worship is real. Why? Because we worship in the Spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus. We know that we are His sheep, His children, that we are true believers because we worship in the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit within us. Upon true salvation, when our hearts are regenerated, many things take place. But number one, the Holy Spirit indwells you and seals you. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. Paul says, In him you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed with him. You were sealed in him, excuse me, with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. You are indwelt and sealed by the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verses 16 through 17, even tells us that the Holy Spirit, having indwelled us and sealed us, an irrevocable thing, that He testifies with our spirit that we do belong to God, that we are his children pushing us towards Christ in worship. This worship led by the Holy Spirit causes us to do one thing, and that is boast in Christ. To have no confidence in yourself. Not my works, not anything I've done, but everything Christ has done. It is Christ and Christ alone that saves. Not any outward thing you do, but Christ and Christ alone. No true believer ever says, I did it. Look at me. No, they say, Christ did it. It is all Christ. In Him alone. If you have been saved, beloved, how can you say you brought anything to the table except the sin that made it necessary? It is Christ and Christ alone. Why so often, even after having been saved, Do we look to ourselves and evaluate what God thinks of us based off of our performance? 
We are not legalists. And I'm thankful for that, but we are so prone to wander, aren't we? We're so prone to revert back to the idea that we have to do outward things or works to maintain what God thinks of us and what we look like. And though we are called to do works, and though our works have been predestined by God before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 3, those don't change what God thinks of you. If you are in Christ, then God sees you as He sees His Son. Because it's Christ and Christ alone. Our boasting is in Him. When God sees you, He doesn't see you. He sees His Son. That's a great and wonderful truth, is it not? We sing about it. His robes for mine. What a wonderful exchange. Clothed in my sin, Christ suffered neath God's rage. Draped in his righteousness, I'm justified. In Christ I live, for in my place he died. So we cling to Christ and marvel at the cross. We don't cling to ourselves. We don't cling to what we do. We cling to Christ and him alone. Walk in Christ. Be saturated with him. Love him. Be in the word and you will never fall back and revert to what you do. Does that make sense? Walk in Him. Colossians chapter 2. Starting in verse 6. Paul says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Having been firmly rooted and being built up in Him and having been established in your faith, just as you were instructed and abounding with thanksgiving, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the, to, <clears throat> excuse me, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of this world, and not according to Christ, legalism. For in Him all the fullness of Deity dwells bodily, and in him you have been filled, who is the head over all rule and authority, in whom you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, physical hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh and the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him. He did it. Not you. Christ did it. He performed the circumcision that cannot be done with human hands. Cutting away the flesh of your heart. Regenerating you. He made you alive with Him, having graciously forgiven us all our transgressions. He's forgiven them all. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, He also has taken it out of way, having nailed it to the cross. Christ did it. 
You didn't save yourself, beloved. Christ did. Nothing you do can ever change your sonship in Christ. Jesus paid it all. What left is there to pay? What left is there to add? Your righteousness, beloved, even on your best days, are but filthy rags. You say, but I am a great sinner. Yes, but Christ is a great Savior, is He not? He saved Paul. He saves to the uttermost. He saves the worst of the worst. Our sins, though they are many, Christ's mercy, His righteousness and blood, His more, covers them all fully. It is Christ's work that saves us. That is why our boasting is in Him. Not in anything we do, but everything that Christ has done. For we are the circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. You can't do anything to change what Christ has done for you, to add upon what Christ has done for you. He's done it all. Why do we make ourselves so weary trying to do things to try to sort of add to our salvation? You can't. Is Christ's work so deficient that we need to add to it? No. He paid it all. Beloved, we are so broken. There is nothing we can do in the slightest to aid Christ in his salvation of us. He did it all. So we boast in him. So often after seeing the fallen state of our hearts, though we are saved, we are still so sinful, still so not like Christ. We are still marred and filled with sin. We try to help God, but but we can't we can't we can't sanctify ourselves. We can't make ourselves more like Christ. He must do the work in us. But he does, doesn't he? That's Paul's hope. Philippians 2, I am confident of this, that the work he began in you, he will complete, not you, but he will. Christ does it all from beginning to end. What a horrible thought to think that Christ has predestined our salvation, has saved us, but then we have to maintain it. No, beloved. Christ does it all from beginning to end. It is Christ. Going back to that illustration I gave at the beginning, maybe when you found out you were sick, when you found out you were sick, you didn't quite listen to the doctor. You thought, oh, maybe I'll try this instead. I've done that several times. And you know what? I've never fixed myself. (laughs) If I would just listen to the doctor, right? In sixth grade, I went to a summer camp. I'm surprised they let me back. But I went to a summer camp, and we had these huge bunk beds in the cabins. And if any of you have been to, like, a boys' summer camp, 
you know, those cabins like stink. They're filthy. They're gross. Kind of like those dogs. Just kidding. But I remember I was on top of the bunk bed and I was jumping across the bunk beds and my youth pastor told me to stop and I I say I didn't hear him. I heard him. I just didn't want to listen and I jumped again and I smacked my knee really hard on one of the frames on the bunk bed. I remember thinking, wow, that really hurt. And we like had to go to lunch or the pool or something and so I jumped down off the bed I remember walking out the cabin, and I felt like my leg was super wet. I was like, what in the world? I look down, and there's blood on my leg, and I pull my leg up, and my knee splits wide open, a three-inch wide gap, and I can see my kneecap. It was horrible. I know. And this is not show and tell right now, so don't ask to see. But they rushed me to the hospital, and I had to get several stitches And I remember thinking, you know, uh, you know, I was just, I was freaking out so much. I was trying to help the doctor, and the doctor just told me to chill, relax, that there was nothing I could do. I didn't know how to stitch myself up. I didn't know how to make the bleeding stop. I didn't know how to make myself well, but the physician did. He had the remedy. He had the prescription to make me well. Much worse, we come broken and and bloodied and marred by sin to Christ. Beloved, there is nothing you can do to aid Christ in your healing. He heals you. He makes you well. The famous evangelist D.L. Moody tells a similar story. He says this in one of his books, A leading surgeon I heard of, when he has a bad wound to dress or a broken limb to set, tells the patients, now look at the wound, see just how bad it looks, and then look to me. So when you have seen the state your heart is in, look to Christ and nowhere else. Look to Christ. Boast in Christ. Not in anything you have done, but in Christ. So it is with us, though we were dead in our sins, the great physician looks at the wounds which we have caused on ourselves. And he says, yes, you're the reason you're, you're dead and broken. Yes, your sin is bad, but look to me and I will make you well. Our boasting is in Christ. Stop trying to gain merit with God. You can't. That merit was already gained for you by Christ. Throw yourself on his merits. What he has done for you. Our boasting, our rejoicing is in Christ, in Christ alone. What exactly does that look like? We will see next week in Paul's testimony. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Father, we see the joy that we should have. The joy that we should have, Father, is not in ourselves or anything we've done, but in you, in you alone. Father, so often we are 
prone to think we can do something to try to add to our salvation or do something to change the way you think of us, but how you think of us hasn't changed because if we are in Christ, then you see us as you see your Son. Therefore, there is nothing for us to boast in except Christ. Lord, we thank you for that gracious gift of salvation which you've bestowed on us in him. Father, if there be anyone in here that doesn't know you, who has been deceived into thinking that they have to maintain their salvation by the disease of legalism, Father, would you save them this very moment? Would you draw them to yourself so that you may be glorified? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.